Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, thanks to our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Market and Cafe. Jeffrey Weiss is with me in the studio. Jeffrey, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you, Ed. And I hope you enjoyed our, our bumper music. That's uh, provided by the Des Moines Irish Session. Yeah? It works. Yeah? I know you're not Irish. You, I mean, I don't hold that against you. I mean, no, I'm sorry I, for, I feel I, sorry for I, you. I, I have nothing to say uh, bad about the Irish. My, my daughter spent some time in Dublin almost the whole summer, and she loved it. Good for her. Okay, we're going to talk about uh, a huge victory uh, in the climate struggle. And I, I, we don't get that get to do that too often, so I'm pretty excited about that. But first, um, a follow-up to last week's program where I shared correspondence with the guy I referred to as my number one detractor. Actually, another guy wrote that he was offended that he was no longer the number one detractor. I says, well, you got to write more often, Frank. Anyway, this was from a guy who says, um, just a quick question, Ed. If man had been around at the time, do you think we could have stopped continental drift or the massive floods? Stopped the meteor that caused the ice age? I mean, I didn't even know how to respond to that, saying, no, what is your point? I mean, he's trying to say that we can't do anything about climate change. <laughs> anyway, oh, those kinds of arguments are just, like, mind-boggling. Anyway, the Navigator Pipeline, Jeffrey. I know you haven't been tracking this as closely as I have, and Bold Iowa has been very involved with it. But we are very excited to see that um, Navigator, which is a product of um, BlackRock and Valero, two of your favorite big corporations, mm -hmm. uh, they have pulled the plug on the project. They, they aren't going to do it. And that uh, most of the Navigator pipeline would have basically followed the same trajectory as DAPL. And so my take is, okay, wh why did this happen? Why, why, why was the Navigator pipeline stopped, but the Dakota Access pipeline was not stopped? Well, one, one theory I have is people weren't ready for it. DAPL was unprecedented. But the landowners and allies gained a lot of experience and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And we, we saw that this worked. We... We saw that we were able to, you know, come together and stop something really bad from happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm far from having much expertise on this particular movement, but it does appear that it's the kind of movement where you were able to build bridges between rural and urban and different political factions in the United States that might not agree on everything, but can agree on that issue. Right. So they, they left their egos behind and and worked on an one issue. one of the one of the uh, the strongest opponents to the CO two pipelines um, is former U S Congressman Steve King. Probably not a guy you expect to be on the same mm -hmm. page with too often, mm -hmm. but on this, yeah, absolutely on the same page. Mm -hmm. And he and I strategized a while back over lunch one day. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, no, and, 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 you know, you know, and. And the reality is, I mean, if, if you study the history of the United States, you know, not, not just political movements, but I mean, even just getting things done, writing good laws in Congress, it's, if you have just a two-party system, you, you need consensus and you need some kind of collaboration. So, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it even gets into that, the larger dynamic of how some, some yeah. of our, you know, the changes in the political culture here. One of the, you know, the, one of the best resources out there, in my experience, is uh, the, the work of uh, Paul and Mark Engler, the Engler brothers who wrote uh, This is an Uprising, and continue to write regularly about, um, about 
how, how movements happen, how, how, how these things you know, evolve into something that can be successful in terms of you know, impacting policy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, know, you and I have been around a while, mm-hmm. me probably a little longer, but I, th- I know you were, you're familiar with the apartheid struggle in yeah. South Africa. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it, activism works or it can work. And I always tell the story that when I was a student at Iowa State and we had an anti-apartheid coalition and we were active, not just at Iowa State, but really with a movement that was global, uh, we would have people that would come to us as we, as we would sit in the Memorial Union um, in our very open meetings, which people would crash um, before that was all. You mean opponents of, well, supporters of apartheid would crash. You know, yeah, I mean, just different <laughs> You can people. imagine such a thing. Well, you know, when we had a commons at Iowa State before it became so corporatized, <laughs> in the <laughs> Memorial Union there, it really was a common area. And, and I remember um, a, a friend who would say, you guys are wasting your time, Mandela's going to die in jail, apartheid's not going to end. You know, and then Mandela goes from prisoner to president. And, yeah, you know, it, 30 it, years in prison. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's a global movement in which when the United States, which was one of the last holdouts of supporting apartheid in South Africa, you know, finally put sanctions, uh, overriding the veto by uh, President Reagan. I remember one of Reagan's quotes at the time, you know, we must not forget that South Africa w- represents Western civilization, which was all true, oh. also true well, on, a, on, a, on a negative note or sort of Gandhi's, what do you think of Western civilization? I think it would be a good, I, I think it would be a good idea. Gandhi, who spent 21 years in South Africa. <laughs> yeah, well, in yeah. another example of, of successful activism, right? So, yeah, so, you know, we're not really taught civics in school or, or how to fight City Hall. But, you know, these are examples that I know you've had them too, Ed, that where people come together and they make change. I'm not, I'm not sure you'd be allowed to teach some of these things in school anymore. I mean, <laughs> my, my wife was a teacher for 14 years and, uh, and taught a, a class on, or taught at least a portion of a course on civil disobedience, reading mm-hmm. Henry David Thoreau, um, mm-hmm. I think uh, studying Martin Luther King as well. I'm not sure she can get away with that today. Yeah, yeah, that's, boy, that's, I guess that gets into one of our other discussions a while back where we talked about um, the varieties of democracy having the United States, what, 79th in the world in academic mm. freedom between Kenya and South Africa. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of, one of, <laughs> that's one of the reasons why, but um, back when we thought civics was a good idea and it was in uh, all of our schools, um, you know, before a lot of our schools sort of adopted the Soviet model of education, which is... Um, For real? Yeah, which is okay. training people into jobs, oh, training sure, people okay. into employment. You know, when, when, when do you think that happened? When did that change occur? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I mean, it, was, it wasn't yeah, overnight. It was subtle. It was gradual. Well, I mean, I think over time, our, our universities have become um, so much more, uh, I mean, they're really conservative well, Not just our universities. Entities but, at the board, yeah. level of the Board of Regents. You know, the he, university presidents are, are oftentimes, you can't distinguish a university president sure. when you listen to them speak from the CEO of IBM. I well, mean, I, it I, sounds, yeah. it's corporate language. I mean, it's the corporatization of, of the... Of, of the public sector everything, that has happened. Yeah. yeah, in everything over over a quarter, you know, a number of decades. But again, back, back to the, the, the navigator pipeline. I mean, mm-hmm. Remember, too, there are two more pipelines being proposed to the upper Midwest. All three of these were supposed to be carrying carbon dioxide. Now, uh, one of them is, well, we're not sure what's happening with the Wolf pipeline, but the Summit pipeline is still a live round, although they basically admitted that, well, we're not on track to get this done 
uh, not now, it'll probably be an, an extra two years before we can even consider getting it done. And that, of course, after what happened in, in, Nova, in Nova Scotia, North Dakota and uh, South Dakota, you know, where they both, both uh, states, Public Utilities Commission said no to the pipeline, mm-hmm. Navigator and Summit, you know, that, that, you know, it doesn't look good for Summit right now either. I mean, the biggest reason why Summit is still alive around here in Iowa is because of the political clout of the guy leading the charge, uh, Bruce Rastetter, uh, very uh, deep pockets, very generous donor to the Republican Party. Uh, and, you know, again, I, as I always point out, this is a bipartisan problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, President Biden signed the bill that includes the tax credits that make these projects mm-hmm. lucrative. They wouldn't be happening without the 45Q tax credit increase. And so, uh, you know, it's a Democratic well, that, problem as well as That's what I was going to ask you, Ed, since you have some expertise on this. I mean, maybe like who you would say is the most or the most effective entity to lobby, you know, or does it depend on the mm-hmm. state or, I mean, are the I, utility boards more or less important than your, your member of your state? You well, know, I think both. I mean, you know, the utilities boards, well, in, in, in Iowa, it's the Iowa Utilities Board. Other mm-hmm. states often, you know, the uh, Public Utilities Commission, but it, it you know, they, they, and it, it, again, this varies from state to state too, but usually that's the entity that has the authority to determine whether or not a particular company gets a permit to use eminent domain. In other words, is allowed to condemn landowners' property in order to put its privately owned infrastructure in place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so that's, a lot of the pressure has been on these, these uh, governmental bodies that, in, you know, in the case of Iowa, all three utility board members are appointed by the governor. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. <laughs> and they're confirmed by the Senate, mm-hmm. the, the state Senate, sure. which has a supermajority of Republicans. So mm-hmm. you know, sure. there, there's no... <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds like a one-state state, yeah. Yeah, it really is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, but, the, uh, but it doesn't hurt for people concerned about these kind of projects to pressure lawmakers, to pressure other elected officials, mm-hmm. to pressure other agencies that might have some say in the matter, Fish and Wildlife, uh, maybe even USDA, but certainly, uh, certainly the EPA and the, um, and the Army Corps of Engineers. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we saw, we saw an attempt by the Iowa legislature to do something about this by putting in some, more, some stricter language regarding eminent domain. And it went, uh, well, it, it passed in the House. But my, my sense is, it passed in the House knowing that it was not going anywhere in the mm-hmm. Iowa Senate, knowing that even if it had, the governor would have vetoed it. But she didn't want, she didn't want that burden. Sure. So she wanted to make sure she let the Senate kill it. The committee that it got appointed to, chaired by a guy who used to work for the company that wants the pipeline. Mm. I mean, talk about a yeah, no conflict of, conflict there, of interest, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, the bottom line is, though, sure. it's, you know, there is a, there's usually, in any coalition, and it's got to be a coalition of varied interests. But there's often one, one element of that coalition that really has the, uh, really carries the story. Sure. You know, and we saw that in North Dakota with the, with the Dakota Access Pipeline. It was the uh, Standing Rock Sioux. Yeah. And uh, here in Iowa, in, when the, in the case of that pipeline, it was, all, it was the landowners and farmers. Mm-hmm. For some reason, that story just got dwarfed yeah. nationally. Yeah. But, well, you know, with, yeah. with this pipeline... It was, it was landowners were front and center, mm-hmm. and that made a huge difference. Well, and you know, with activism, and I know you, you've experienced this too, but it's, it's a lot easier to develop coalitions for 
a um, you know a, a simple solution to a problem. No pipeline. <laughs> you know that that's a lot simpler than let's say something like Occupy Wall Street, where you have you know twenty eight different demands that. Well, are, yeah. You know, and I'm not. I'm not. It's not a criticism of Occupy Wall Street. It should Street. be it's, actually. It's, well, but I mean, <laughs> I mean but it's like. But I mean, it's like how do you go about dismantling? You know, private power. Sure. <laughs> you but know, I, and you know, and well, so it, that that makes it so much. More challenging, you know. I, I think um, you hit it though. You got to stay focused. There's got to yeah. be one particular focus, and you're right. Yeah. No pipeline. That's an easy one and an obvious mm-hmm. one. And this, that's just the, the nature of the beast makes it very simple. Mm-hmm. But with uh, with uh, the whole Occupy Wall Street movement, yeah, there was originally a very clear focus on the corruption that was happening in the banks at that mm-hmm. time. Uh, I mean, the, the mortgage industry was out of control. People were losing their mm-hmm. homes left and right for fraudulent mm-hmm. reasons. I mean, it was it was yeah. it was it was identifiable. Oh yeah. And then the whole thing just spun out of control. Yeah. Well, and then you know, Wall Street got bailed out. We got sold out. And, and the one percent, <laughs> the ninety nine percent. I mean, those are wonderful. But then the question is, what next? You know, and what yeah. what can a movement agree on? I mean, there's even a lot of discussions with you know, Black Lives Matter were the largest political demonstrations in the history of the United States. You know, for those who study social movements, and at the same time, you know, that movement has had a number of dramatic successes. I mean. Look at Denver, Colorado. Look at the many cities around the United States that are now calling upon mental health professionals, you know, to deal with the person who has a drug addiction and, you know, falls mm. asleep in a, in a, you know, a fast food um, mm. drive-in, you know. And, and a, I, I a would... number of, of police procedures have changed. Um, I mean, a number of sports teams because of, or sports enterprises, NFL and, you know, NHL, et cetera, I mean, changed literally overnight because of that movement. Um, policing has changed in many different ways. So the larger structural, you know, demands that, that the, the Black Lives Matter movement have made, you know, are, are far from coming to fruition. Nevertheless, um, you know, we can't minimize the, the many successes. So, so activism does, does work. And Really, you're not going to get a lot done just you know sitting yeah. on the couch and but, you know, sending I, out emails. But or, you know, I, and, and I don't I don't deny that I certainly recognize that, that BLM accomplished some things, but uh, there are also some you know it, this and again this is the risk that happens. Uh, that movement went went from protesting uh, you know a clear abuse of power in the case mm-hmm. of George Floyd to calling and I remember being at a protest where it was all cops are B A S T A R D S. Can't say it F C C anyway, you know, all and, and and you know, those kinds of generalizations and um uh, you know sure. and and bad choice of language yeah. don't do anything to build a movement. Well and, and that can be a challenge as you know for any movement is, you know, also when you have protests and you have events, the people who organize them, they can't they can't control the crowd and who's going to show up and who's going to show up with what flags and everything and say what things uh, to sure. the microphone. That, you know, that, and, yeah. and it may or may not be representative yeah. of, of the demands that, that, are, that are made. That you know? was one thing that happened yeah, with, with, the, with the fight against the CO2 pipelines and, Navi- and Navigator. was mm-hmm. It was a movement that was led by the primary people who were in the front lines, the crosshairs of these things, the landowners, the farmers. And other entities, you know, people concerned about the environment, about public health, about the water quality mm-hmm. issue, about climate change. They were involved, but they weren't front and center. Mm-hmm. And that mattered, mattered a lot. Yeah. And again, and there was a fairly unified message, um, even though people like, like him, me and Steve King, sure. having lunch together, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, talking yeah. about how we're going to, um, 
uh, you know, be effective in this, uh, in yeah. this effort. Well, and really the movement to save all living things, right, otherwise known as the climate movement, <laughs> right, you know, right, is, right. is really one that has to figure out, as you know, what kind of groups need to be together and need and need to be together because it will take yeah. th- those kind of coalitions to make the change that we need yeah. to make. That's one of the problems on the political left is it tends to just go all over the place sometimes. There tends to be a lack of focus. Well, I, yeah, always, I, I, I'm never really sure what the political left even means when it comes to the United States. Yeah. I mean, it would have to be a, a separate discussion because, yeah. like I said, as the Financial Times notes, um, you know, Bernie Sanders would be at home in a center-left, center-right party in Europe. Hey, we've got to take a short break. Uh, Jeffrey Weiss and Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Uh, I'm going to take you out with um, a piece of music called uh, called Defeating the Giant by Rob Grice. <laughs> Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to Catholic Peace Ministry, an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. Catholic Peace Ministry focuses on nuclear disarmament, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. All right, Jeffrey Weiss and Ed Fallon here with you, folks. Uh, we're going to shift gears and talk about the Middle East, uh, specifically the, the uh, Israeli-Hamas war and whether it's possible to achieve lasting peace. And what is happening? What the, what's the response to people who are calling on uh, a, a, a holistic view of the conflict? Mm-hmm. Jeffrey, uh, you you pay a lot of attention to this stuff, and um, 
I imagine you were also aware that uh, the presidential candidates were in Iowa this past weekend. Well, I should say the Republican presidential mm -hmm. candidates. We no longer really want Democrats here, apparently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but DeSantis, um, he repeated his call to deny refugees from Palestine to enter the country. He also wants to deport international students who are involved in a demonstration in support of Palestinians. Free speech. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? Well, who they have? Who knew? First yeah. Amendment. Well, you're free speech, but only if you're well. I mean, I, right. in this case, if you're if you're if you're if you're foreign, you have the right speech. You're yeah. free. All right. And uh, Nikki Haley says, "quote There would be no Hamas if there wasn't in Iran." See this for what it is. Oh, wow. What do you think she means by that? I don't. Yeah, I don't. Um, I, I don't generally feel like just responding to idiocy. Um, you know the. What we have, I mean, what I think what people should most understand about this conflict is that, you know, if, if you study international law, and not really what I am about to say is, is my perspective, it's not. I mean, what does the world think about this conflict? And the reality is, what is unique about the Palestinians is that unlike the Kurds, unlike the Chechens, unlike the Basque, unlike the Kashmiris, I could keep going on and on. They're the only nation in the world that according to international law, UN Security Council and General Assembly resolutions have what's called a right to self-determination. They have observer status at the United Nations because the 5.5 million Palestinians, uh, the three and a half million who live in the West Bank and two and a half million who live in the Gaza Strip are illegally militarily occupied by Israel. That's been the case since 1967. And so it really doesn't matter what these people have to say about Israel-Palestine or what we have to say or what I'm saying right now. I mean, this, this, is, this is a fact. This is what international law says. This is what the world says. When you look at UN General Assembly resolutions on this conflict, many of them are about the right of an occupied people. How should Israel treat the Palestinians in the occupied territories, which is essentially a Geneva Convention's Article 4 issue. You cannot, if you are illegally occupying somebody else, else's land, you can't move your people onto the land you're occupying, of which Israel has now moved, you know, as you know, 600 or 700,000 people um, into the West Bank. So, so that is the crux of the conflict. And if people don't know that, or if people talk about this conflict outside of occupation, they're well, missing everything. But that, and that, that, that is what's happening in the U.S. It has been for a long yeah. time, and it's both on the Democratic and Republican sides yeah. of the political discussion. Yeah. There's, there's a, what you just described is not the perspective of the U.S. No, but, but there's so many things, I, I think, that are, that are wrong with so much of the discussion. I'll give you another one. I think that, I, I think that you know, if you look at international law, Hamas is guilty of war crimes. Hamas is not, sure. is, which is something worse than terrorism. In other words, if even though the Palestinians are not a nation state, if you're an armed group that carries weapons outside of the civilian population, you have a chain of command, you have a, a military, sort of like if it walks like a duck, if it, if it quacks like a duck, that it is a duck. Um, groups like Hamas and Hezbollah can be can be seen by the international international criminal court as 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 needing to enforce international humanitarian law that is even with prisoners or hostages 
that they take. And I think this is another thing that's missing from the media narrative. I mean, the T word, I call it the T word. I don't call it terrorism because there's 12 international treaties on the T word and it's not defined in international law what it actually is. In fact, most of the countries that don't want to f define terrorism are generally in the Security Council. And we, we live in one of them. Russia. Because, because in part, I guess it's... it's US, yeah. Yeah, there was, a, there was a former Reagan administration official was pretty honest. He said, you know, we were coming up with these definitions of terrorism, and then we realized we didn't like any of them because so, nearly all of them would apply to the United States and Israel too, you know. So, you know, but, but which is honest. But, but yeah, so I mean, I guess I would say that for people who want some understanding of this conflict, I mean, Amnesty International... Human Rights Watch. I mean, a lot of the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross. I mean, well, those are those are better sources than MSNBC, yeah, Fox, I would, CNN, I, I would, and National Public Radio, I would argue the, the New York Times. I would argue the we're a better source too. <laughs> but you know, I, and and also, uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, it, it is amazing to me. The, I mean, I, I just shared with you some of what the Republican presidential candidates mm -hmm. want to do. Uh, I mean, Tim Scott. He would take away Pell Grants from any universities that allow protests in support of Palestinians. So, I mean, not just the students involved in the protests, but anyone yeah. gets canceled well, he, from he Pell would, Grants. He would struggle from that because there, there is something in the United States that I'm not sure. Well, but that's somebody, what he's saying. You know? Yeah, I mean, there is something called the First Amendment. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we still have, <laughs> still it. have um, it. Yeah, there is something called freedom of speech. Um, freedom of speech can take place on college campuses uh, about things that people agree or or, or disagree with, you know, but I don't know. The, the, I don't know where I get started about there's so many things that are left out of this discourse. Yeah. I mean, Israel has nuclear weapons. I sure, mean, I know. How That's, often do yeah. you hear those four words? In fact, there was a funny time when years ago when Helen Thomas, uh, the White House reporter who would always ask interesting questions of presidential candidates, she, when Obama became president, she tried to get him to say it. She was thinking these four words are never uttered. So she said, what countries in the Middle East have nuclear weapons? And it was, I sat there at the edge of my seat saying, is Obama going to say those four words? And he didn't, of course. He magically bounced around him, which was very Because, clever, because but, people don't know that? No, because, I mean, it, it entirely changes the sure, narrative. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. the, the, the power here is so disproportionate in terms of of the military and and you know the T word terrorism if you study it is asymmetrical warfare or you know like the Palestinians say if you want to stop terrorism give us some F16s you know in other words um you know people who 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 um kill civilians for political purposes uh, not always i mean when militaries do that it's a war crime <laughs> you know but but generally um you know, the, the, the power differential is, is so huge. Although I'll say it again, I, I would argue from international law standpoint that, that Hamas is, is, is guilty of war crimes because they fit the characteristics of an army even though they're not a country. So I want to take it back to uh, what, some of the, what, what the, some of the proponents of peace are being met with. I mean, uh, Representative Ilan Omar, um, she's now saying she fears for her family's safety. Wow. Uh, she's received this, uh, the, uh, lots of threats. Uh, why, again, for criticizing Israel's treatment of Palestinians. Mm. And, um, you know, she's, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing other examples of Islamophobic uh, mm -hmm. actions, including, a, you know, a, a kid in Illinois being killed. And I, you know, I, I, I the whole, the whole yeah. mainstream media is culpable. But here's, I want to read you the, uh, the lead line from a Fox News story. Um, <laughs> then I want to play you the clip that they're referring mm -hmm. to. Uh, quote, Representative Omar broke down in a fit of rage Friday, aimed at, pres aimed at President Biden and Democratic leadership over their support for Israel, 
amid the, the war with Hamas. Her angry comments came during a press conference held outside the U.S. Capitol alongside a few fellow members of the far-left squad calling for a ceasefire in the war. That's, that's, how, um, <laughs> that's how Fox, I mean, fair and balanced? Oh, yeah, right. That's how Fox yeah. spun this. And here's, here's the actual clip. Where is your humanity? How do you look at one atrocity and say this is wrong, but you watch as bodies pile up, as neighborhoods are leveled? Israel has dropped more bombs in the last 10 days than we dropped in a whole year in Afghanistan. Where is your humanity? Where is your outrage? Where is your care for people? How is it that we have a president who is talking about releasing hostages, who is talking about getting American citizens out of Israel, but could not get himself to say, I want to save and work to save the hundreds, thousands of Americans is stuck in Gaza? What is wrong with you? How is this possible? Is a certain American's life important than another? Is the American that is living in Gaza less important than the one living in Israel? So, yeah, she's, uh, she's angry. Um, and I would call it <laughs> passionate, mm -hmm. uh, fired up. Uh, you know, the whole take on it is she's out of control, uh, she, you know, she's, she's irrational. I mean, yeah. women get that thrown at them anyhow often yeah. enough, right? I think in a normal society or a normal country, somebody like Elon Omar would be an example of the American dream. I mean, somebody who uh, came from Somalia, who's, you know, so proud to have War immigrated. War-torn country. Absolutely. Yeah. Who, you know, whose family, you know, worked herself up, you know, respects the institutions of the country, um, you know, it, and, and so, yeah, I mean... But I think the righteous anger that Elon Omar just speaks to how the majority of the countries of the world and how the majority of the people of the world see this. The majority of the people of the world don't see Israeli or U.S. lives being superior or exceptional. I remember President Obama used the term exceptional. We're the exceptional nation. They don't see those lives as being more exceptional than Palestinian lives. They, they think that all people around the world have human rights. Um, they believe in Nuremberg. They believe that the Germans were convicted of the supreme international crime, a law of aggression, that illegal wars, um, illegal indiscriminate uh, bombing of civilians, um, mm. forced removals, um, you know, that it really doesn't make a significant difference if, you know, your, your, your toddler is, is killed by a missile um, or if they're killed by... Uh, you know, suicide vest of somebody who goes into a pizzeria in Tel Aviv, that, you know, they're still dead. Mm. Um, and so the world as a whole, which is good news, sees the lives of Israelis, Palestinians, people in the United States, Somalis. Um, and of course, we don't, right? <laughs> we don't. Well, I mean, and, and we I, meaning I, our government doesn't. And, and I want to ask, you know, ask, but I, I wish I, one day we did. I want to ask why. I wish one day we did. Why that is. But first, I want to share a letter from. Uh, one of um, one of our frequent listeners, uh, Lee Tesdell, mm -hmm. who uh, wrote this letter to the Iowa congressional delegation last week, 
1949, my parents, Lauren and Margaret, both Iowans, traveled to Gaza, Palestine, to join a group of idealistic Quaker humanitarian volunteers. Their job was to help the Palestinian people expelled by the Israeli military in 1948 and 1949 from their villages. In southern Palestine, uh, to get set up with basic necessities in Beach Camp, one of the main Palestinian refugee camps. Here we are 75 years later, and the Israeli government, the Egyptian government, and the U.S. have colluded to make Gaza into a prison of more than 2 million people. By comparison, Polk County, Iowa, Des Moines, has four times the area and one quarter of the population of Gaza. Some of those people, grandchildren and great-grandchildren of my parents' friends, were recruited by Hamas to attack southern Israel last Saturday in a statement of suicidal desperation. On the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, the daily humiliations that Palestinians face at the hands of the Israeli military and police have also created a poisonous atmosphere. I know I have seen it in person. Therefore, it is clear that bombing the people of Gaza into submission will once again yield a bitter harvest. Israel only strengthens Hamas with its horrendous air attacks on civilians. Similarly, the militants' terrible attacks on Israeli families only brings on revenge killing by the overpowering might of the Israeli military. Therefore, I urge you to promote a U.S. strategy in Washington that, one, stops military activity by all parties immediately, two, requires Hamas and Israel to negotiate the return of all hostages, three, begins negotiations between the United Nations, Hamas, Egypt, and Israel to open Gaza's borders to the outside world, Finally, in order to end this 75-year cycle of violence, end the Israeli occupation of East Jerusalem and the West Bank and the blockade of Gaza. This will take some time and make for difficult negotiations, but remember that violence, persecution, and killing only lead to more of the same. 75 years of history in Palestine Israel has shown that. By helping to negotiate a real peace with justice, the U.S. government will be doing Israelis and Palestinians a big favor. Sincerely, Lee Testel. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, really, right now, the, the U.N. Secretary General's office, I mean, days ago, called for a ceasefire. Um, you know, the whole world, for the most part, is, you know, is, is, is calling for a ceasefire. But, but in the final analysis, what do you do with five and a half million people in the West Bank and Gaza Strip? They're not going to just disappear. You, you can't ethnically cleanse them overnight. I mean, maybe over time you can, but that even takes a long time. Um, and so, you know, th this isn't good for... Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think a lot of the Israeli peace groups, and there's a lot of them in Israel, you know, and, and they meet with, with Palestinians and everything. And I actually heard some of them on, on NPR, which I was glad NPR. I mean, I think the political narrative is, is breaking in the United States. So I really and, do. And, and what, I really what, do. What, why is it that, again, the political narrative embraced by both, both Democrats, Republicans in, 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 in leadership for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, and it's certainly embraced by the mainstream media. Why is that narrative so out of step with the rest of the world and even with, with stated policies of the UN? Why, why, yeah. why is it impossible for a representative, Elon Omar, to express a reasonable sentiment without being attacked yeah. and threatened yeah. Well, what's different? It, what's what's going on here? I mean, I don't know. A couple of different questions. But I mean, when you look at the UN General Assembly resolutions and they have to do with the day to day of occupation, they're generally 190 to two or 190 to three. Um, you know, they're pretty decisive votes. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, I suppose the New York Times would say that the, the world community is divided, you know, but then you look at the vote. It doesn't seem like much of a division, but whatever. Um, 
But I mean, I think the narrative is breaking. I'll answer it in a different, you know, I think the old way of, you know, people listening to the three channels, um, the old systems of authority have so broken down in terms of, of information that especially young people are finding out not what the Israelis think, not what the Palestinians think, but what the world thinks. I always say to my students, there's never two sides to a story. There's always far more than two. And the scientific method teaches facts. <laughs> you know, the best we can get to facts. Um, and so sides may not be helpful at all. And I, and I will try to say to them, you should know what the world thinks about, about different topics. And so I think more people in the United States now are breaking away from the two-party narrative about this, and they're just getting information from a lot of different places. And so, you know, it's really, I don't know. I, I, I get, in terms of talking about this, in terms of solution, when I used to work with the Quakers, I, I try to come up with innovative solutions to different problems, and sometimes I'd end up getting hit from all sides, which, yeah. you know. It's, it's, we need some creative minds to um, sit down at the table yeah. and, and work this out. Well, we have more to talk about today, too. We want to talk about um, what happened in Argentina and what that might mean in terms of the, the political you know, ground being gained by some on the very, very extreme right. But we've got to take a short break. Uh, this is Ed Fallon with Jeffrey Weiss. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. And I'll leave you with this tune called Peace Anthem for Palestine by musician and comedian Tim Minchin. And the lyrics, uh, you know, I, again, I think sometimes comedy is not a bad way to, to cut through the BS and really look at what's behind a problem. And I think he does a great job with these simple, obvious lyrics that, you know, are kind of a, phrasing a question that even a kid might ask. We don't eat pigs. You don't eat pigs. <laughs> it seems it's been that way forever. So if you don't eat pigs, and we don't eat pigs, why not not eat pigs together? <laughs> yeah. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org.
Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westerman and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, Jeffrey Weiss and Ed Fallon with you here today. And um, big election in Argentina. Uh, you know, all the headlines were saying, hey, this uh, far right, this radical right guy um, didn't win, but he did pretty well. And what does that mean for Argentina's future? These two will face a runoff on November 19th. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I, I've, got, I've got mixed feelings about, about the whole movement to the right globally. But let's start with Argentina. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the first thing I would mention is, um, you know, in South America, um, elections are on Sundays, and they're, you know, they try to write laws to promote people voting, and oh, how how different? Yeah, and it's <laughs> how unique, how and, quaint. And like many countries in South America, um, all of them have presidential republics. It, so, nearly all of them adopted their form of government, their form of republic after the United States. But the three that had the electoral college. Abolished electoral college. So the United Which States three had the electoral stands college. Alone. I believe Chile, Argentina, and I'm forgetting the other one. Mm. Uh, but but it wasn't too far into their histories that that part of the carbon copy of our constitution they eliminated. So so yeah. the United States stands alone in the world in terms of electing a head of government who actually loses the election, allowing them to win the election. Which but has anyway. happened what three times? Yeah, and in recently the, too. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. several times recently. So. Yeah. So Argentina has a national popular vote, but like also many countries in South South America, also France does this in their semi-presidential republic, but they have a runoff vote where you have, it's called majority voting. You can't win head of government unless you get 50% of the vote. In the United States, we have plurality voting, which means you can win theoretically by getting 22% of the vote. And that we might see that happen in some of the municipal elections coming up. Yeah, yeah. Which used to be like the system you described. You had to get that majority or you had a runoff. Absolutely. And and now it's, you know, in one race here in Des Moines where there are like seven candidates, you can get 20% and win. Absolutely. (laughs) And so, once again, other countries more concerned about democracy have have changed their laws accordingly to to wanting majority voting. So you have the 36%, which was won by what are called the Peronists, you know, sort of the, the long ruling establishment in Argentina that is more I mean, sort of center-left yeah, Democratic well, Party kind of. I well, mean, pretty conservative by global standards. Yeah, probably, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then you have the, you know, what's this? Is it Malay? I'm trying to say his name. You know, the firebrand who 30%, he's described as libertarian. He's described as, you know, not quite the Trump of the tropics like Bolsonaro would call. <laughs> but, you know, somewhat, you know, um, in, in his, he won 30%. Um, and then a candidate that won 24% is more kind of neoliberal privatization. Okay, so um, where's, where's that 24% going to go? It's uh, not going to go with the guy yeah, who got 30%. Absolutely. Right. And, and already, uh, you know, actually good media reporting, you know, Reuters and others, you know, report that. <laughs> i got to give credit. Um, <laughs> when it happens. <laughs> you know, yeah. That, 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 it, doesn't, it doesn't even happen on Israel. <laughs> that, well, we, we're seeing a lot more of it, I will say. Okay. Yeah, good. even NPR has improved substantially. Um, I, I, or, I mean, maybe substantially, but they've improved some. But anyhow... 
Um, so when it comes to uh, you know that 24%, both of the candidates will be going after that. You know, so your your larger question of sort of you know what is making the the, the far right what is making the far right um, you know have have gains. I mean, I, I think it's exaggerated maybe the, the, the gains that the far right's having around the world. I mean, really, if you look at South America, there's well, a lot of more center-left governments that have been elected recently. But but to your point, there are there are a number of these individuals. Obviously, well, and, Orban, and Erdogan, would, and would you would Putin. you put would you put Trump in that category? Oh, of course, I yeah. I, I put. I put, I, but not so much Trump. I, I would, I would put the party that he belongs to as, as, um, yeah. I mean, as a party that is, not me, but I mean, varieties of democracy and comparative government studies generally say that they are closer to being an illiberal or an authoritarian party. They're somewhere in between, sort of the conservatives in Europe and uh, Erdogan's party uh, Turkey, in, in Turkey. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So. So we're we're heading down the illiberal road. So why why why, <laughs> why the electoral is, process? Why is the willingly. world heading in this direction? Boy, <laughs> I mean, Ed. I mean, for people who write books about such, uh, there's 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 a lot of different theories. Um, I don't know. I think one of the interesting ones, if if you listen to um, the the Greek economist Yanis Varoufakis, who's who's really an interesting guy, he's written a lot of books that I'd recommend. But he. He tends. He says that the financial sphere in the world has become so powerful um, that really the political, the industrial sphere, it's probably the financial sphere of of the world, sort of the titans of the universe, <laughs> are are at the top. You know, who set the interest rates for all the central banks. You know, financial flows going across borders. There's more trade in the world between corporations and companies than there are countries in terms of you know, exports and imports across borders. And he says that the financial sphere has become so powerful that it's almost like the financial sphere is the, uh, the titans of the universe. Industries may be second, and the political sphere has been sort of relegated to third. I mean, we remember. I remember years ago when real rich um, capitalists in the United States would say, you know, give us the economy. Well, what's good for General Motors is good for America, and but but we'll give <laughs> right. you the political sphere. You know, you can have your one person, one vote. We won't try to intervene too much in terms of law and things like that. But, you know, mm -hmm. now that the, the financial sector has, I don't know, in the words of Yanis Varoufakis, sort of destroyed capitalism um, as we know it by creating what he calls techno-feudalism, um, you know, he, you know, I think that's one of the more interesting arguments that even for an Argentina, how do you control Argentina's inflation when when so much of their inflation, well, this, this what's called this, they call them a right-wing firebrand, but he wants to make the U.S. dollar the, the the primary currency, which Ecuador, Panama, El Salvador has. I mean, so he, he wouldn't be the first country in South America to to make the U.S. Well, even even as currency. the world um, may be moving away from making the U.S. dollar its uh, its uh, focal point. It, possibly. I mean, possibly. I, I mean, the, the Chi I, Chinese capitalists yeah. don't, do not want to see that happen. The, the last thing that Chinese capitalists want to see is for the U.S. dollar to lose its power because, of course, they own, what, close to a trillion dollar? I think Chinese, of, con I think Chinese communists Treasury. would love to see that happen. No. Uh, no, you, you they, don't think guys, Chinese communists like are, 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 are very capitalist. Um, there's, there's actually a real, <laughs> real interest, you know, there's a real interesting debate going on within the Chinese Communist Party about that. You know, there are factions that would like to see uh, the U.S. dollar be weakened. But there are other factions that, of course, especially those Chinese capitalists and those people who make money, 
um, who that's the last thing they want to see because their dollars are invested in U.S. Treasuries. Their dollars are invested indirectly sometime in Wall Street, <laughs> you know. And so, I, I think some of that is exaggerated, really, because okay. yeah, I really do because because for the financial class around the world, they still know where to put their money, and many of them put their money and have faith in the United mm -hmm. States economy because it's still the largest economy in the world and. We have 330, 335 million people here who have still considerable purchasing power, let alone where do you invest it? Let Wall me, Street's me, a, a, good, a good bet. Let me throw, throw a theory at you. I mean, I don't think there's one simple reason why we see this rise of authoritarianism around the world, but I think, I think a big part of it is the wheels are finally falling off the industrialization experiment. This, this experiment that um, is, it's, it's the economic growth model that says we've always got to be getting bigger. Um, the only way is up, consume more, grow more, um, more people. And again, at the heart of it all is, is you know, population growth. But, you know, but the, the industries that, the individuals that have the industries that have gotten incredibly rich mm -hmm. off this resource extraction economy, mm -hmm. this model of constant growth, they need more and more people. So they have more and more consumers, and I really object to being called a consumer. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I think uh, mm -hmm. I think the wheels are finally falling off this, uh, and people may not know why, but they see all around them it's not working. And, and one of the manifestations, of course, is climate change, mm -hmm. but there are other manifestations as well, including inter international conflicts. Some of that, you know, rooted over resources, diminishing availability of water and. Yeah. And, uh, and no, I and, yeah. I, and I and I think I think that's a that's a, so people are turning desperately to the authoritarian leader. I mean, look at all yeah. the look at all the fantasy, the all, all the uh, all the uh, the shows, uh, the movies out there that there's always a hero, right? Mm -hmm. There's always a hero. It yeah. doesn't like it isn't like a group of um, of people came together. And said, okay, how do we fight these aliens? You know, yeah. it wasn't yeah. like it wasn't like it was it, was, it, was, it wasn't bottom up. It was sure. always some hero step forward and yeah. save the day. Well, and we're looking yeah. for those heroes. Yeah. Whether it's this, this guy in Argentina with 30% sure. of the people want. Yeah. Or we need men of action, not words, as President Trump has said, you know, which is, yeah, it sounds like Mussolini. Well, <laughs> when you, in fact, look, I mean, there's a wonderful environment, you know, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell, you know, is a, mm -hmm. is a saying from the environmental movement. But most in most of these cases, it's taking place in presidential republics, not exclusively, because, I mean, Orban was able to capture state power. In Hungary. Um, in Hungary, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have a similar movement in Poland. But in most cases, it's a presidential republic. And, and because a presidential republic is so dysfunctional on its face, if you have opposition parties, you tend to have gridlock. So even in the case of Argentina, it's already been stated that there'll be multiple parties in Congress, so whoever becomes president doesn't write law, mm. and therefore what they're able to do is is minimal anyway. So you have constant dysfunction and gridlock in a presidential republic, or you have one party controlling all three branches. In case you have a, in, the, in that case, you have a one-party state. So those mm. are two fatal flaws of our form of government, which I would also argue most of these cases that you're discussing are taking place in presidential, not parliamentary republics, and also not semi-presidential republics. And again, we're the, we're the one remaining presidential republic that uh, still allows electoral, electoral college to exist. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. we're one of the least democratic presidential republics in the world. And yeah. if you want to see the best model of a presidential republic, go to Costa Rica. Costa Rica, sure. Hey, uh, Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us today, folks. Jeffrey Weiss has been my co-host of this uh, first part of the pro program. Uh, Kathy Burns coming back with me after we come back from a short break in a minute. 
Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Hey, thanks to our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Market and Cafe. Kathy, welcome to the program. And you uh, sent me a story that was on public radio regarding something that's being called care farms. New to me, um, but the idea is that uh, there are places you can go where there are animals and vegetables, and you can connect with those creatures and help yourself through a grieving period, or if you suffer from any kind of you know mental, mental distress, uh, that can be a good experience for you. And I'm saying, oh, who knew? <laughs> well, we all knew, I guess, but I, I didn't know that it wasn't known, but I also didn't know that there was a growing movement of places that are established or used specifically for that purpose. It happens more, I believe, in the UK than in the US right now, but there's a growing number of folks who are who are in a network of, of uh, care. Uh, groups. Yeah, well, I, mean, I was reading in Europe and in a lot of uh, Netherlands in particular is okay. uh, is really prominent. But um, six thousand to somewhere between six and ten thousand care farms mm-hmm. are in all of Europe. And I, I, I don't I don't know what, what's the difference between a care farm and a farm that grows food. I'm not th- clear about that. I think it's a farm that grows food that can just be targeted more specifically by people seeking an experience that is earthy, that is wholesome, that is uh, restorative. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the, it, it's, the article also said any farm or any growing space can be in the network of the care farms. Yeah. Um, and it made me think, though, about maybe you don't have to go out into the country to a great big farm or even a small farm that's elsewhere. If you live in the city, there may be some spaces like 
like our space is, is very curative for people. Well, and there should be too. And I wonder how many of these six to 10,000 farms in Europe are in urban areas. Uh, I, I, looking here, the, uh, the actual number for the Netherlands, 1,300. Mm-hmm. That's a small country. And, yeah. and it, it's a testament to the value of having growing spaces, animals, and food production in the city. Yeah. It's healing for people. I notice in the story, in the uh, public radio story, uh, the photographs that accompany that story are people interacting with animals that we don't eat, <laughs> oh. donkeys and horses. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wonder to what extent is our animals being raised for meat also part of the the farm, the, 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 uh, the care process. I, I think, I mean, we don't have trouble with that. We know how that works. Mm-hmm. Some people, I think, might have trouble with that. Maybe there are choices that people can make if they want to interact with animals that are in the U.S., traditionally not for consumption, or if they want to go to a place where they learn more about, um, you know, a, a, an omnivore cycle of life kind of situation where you can give an animal a very good life, uh, be have that animal be very cared for, and also have it be used for consumption. Mm-hmm. Some people think those are self-contradictory, and I don't buy that. And I was that. disappointed that nowhere in the story is that, uh, is that challenge addressed, because I think that's a really important question. Well, it's a small, yeah. it's a short story, yeah. so okay. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe in a bigger context. I didn't go read the yeah. comments. Maybe that's addressed there. Yeah, but I think question. I think the you know for me the the hello is that it's available closer than you might think, you know. Right. And I'm not giving medical advice, but if you're seeking solace, if you're seeking restoration, if you're seeking peace, a lot of people will go to the woods, take a walk, but. There's something essential about putting your hands in the soil, about touching another kind of creature. Uh, there's something that, that really connects you to a, something bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that can be had in so many different ways. Uh, one of them is to go away from your city to a farm. Some is there might be a local farm in your own community um, or just, you know, having a space base in your yard if you can to grow a few things yeah yeah bring the farm to you that's right, <laughs> right. turn your yard into dinner <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. yeah well it's to me to me also um it's inherent that we did all know this and i'm glad they they had the story on this but i think it is very inherent in our in our human psyche mm-hmm. to to want to be connected with the earth um, I'm hearing and, people say they, they go for walks in the woods for, what do they call that, a, a, a nature bath or something? I can't remember what the Forest t- bath. Forest bath. To me, that's a walk in the woods. Yeah. And, you know, what about a sound bath? There are sound baths. I felt like I had a sound bath when we took our fall hike the other day because we sat in a space, it was at White Rock Conservancy, and we, we heard nothing but natural <laughs> sounds for a little right. while. Yeah. That was our sound My bath. idea of a good sound bath is, is nothing. <laughs> no noise. No, none. Hey, Kathy, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. And, um, yeah, I'll be intrigued to learn more about this. Hey, thanks to uh, my co-host today, Jeffrey Weiss. Thanks also to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, 
Story County Veterinary Clinic, and Western Optometry. And thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. We'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.